The theme for Pastor Mark's series in 1 Timothy, the pillar, is found in the verses in our scripture reading this morning. It's 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you that um, your word is sufficient and your grace gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We're so grateful for passages like this in front of us today, First Timothy 3 and all of what it says regarding the importance of the church and what it means for us to express that at College Park. And so I pray today that you would help me to clearly explain the significance, the importance, the beauty of what the body of Christ uh, is. I, I love the church of Jesus Christ. I love what you're doing here in this church. And I, I pray that you would help your word to go forth today um, in power and in might as only it can when you empower it by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question that I asked when I introduced this entire sermon series, and it's this. When you think of the word church, what comes to mind? When you think of church, what, what immediately comes to your mind's eye? Do you see a building or do you see a people? When you think of church, do you think of a particular time era in your lifetime? Maybe as a kid or maybe... Growing up, maybe a little younger teenager, maybe it's something recently that uh, you have in mind. When I say the word church, does it denote positive emotions or does it denote some kind of negative emotions? In fact, some of you probably would say, no, church is really positive. And others of you, you're here because you're really in what we like call the church recovery program. Or some of you may be in the church witness protection program, right? So (laughs) you're like, ah, the church really makes me nervous. We all have different experiences with the church. In fact, let me illustrate this for you. Um, How many of you were raised in a church of a thousand or less? That was your experience. Put your hand up. Now just look around. Now, thanks. The reason why that's important to note is that a church of our size, most of us have no idea what we're doing here, right? We really don't. We've never experienced church like this, church this large, this size. And so, in many respects, we're kind of writing our own story of what it means to be the church in the midst of um, a large church. And we all bring our own experiences with us. Some of those experiences are good. Others have rather bad experiences. The fact is, is that the church, as we know it, not only has all of this kind of baggage from our past, positive and negative, but there's also this reality that the church within our generation, within your lifetime, within my lifetime, has changed very significantly. Just consider a couple things. Let's just talk about the size of the church, the size of local churches. In the early 20th century, do you know the number of churches that were larger than 2,000? In the earliest 20th century, there were only six churches in the entire country larger than 2,000. And by 1960, that number had only grown to 16. And then by 2012, there are over 1,600 churches of 2,000 and more. You might say, well, what happened? Well, a number of things happened. Uh, Suburbia happened. 
television happened. Um, longer commutes happened. People traveling to church. I mean, think of how many churches you passed on your way here. Right? Many of you may live 10, 15 minutes away from this very location. That's a very different way of doing church than what has been done historically. Think of also just the effect of something like the Internet. I mean, you can go home today, and if you don't like my sermon, you can go and listen to any sermon you want all over the world. In fact, there's never been a time in the history of the church where you could listen to any preacher, even the best preachers in all of the world. You have complete access to them. I mean, that's pretty intimidating, if you think about it, at least from where I stand. I mean, it's a pretty tough environment to be a B-rate preacher around here, right? I mean, it's tough. You can say any sermon you want, and it's all available to you. Or just think in church planting strategy. If you would have told me 10 years ago that one of the premier ways that churches would be planting other churches would be something called multi-site, where a church takes another location and another venue, and in some cases they not only worship together, but then they watch the sermon on video, and that's the way that the Holy Spirit was going to grow the church in the year 2000 to 2012, I would have said, you're crazy, and yet it's happening. So there's all sorts of things that are going on such that my guess is that if you went to sleep in church in 1940 and you woke up in 2012, you might wonder, what planet do I live on? Because the reality is the church is really different than what it was back in the 1940s, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So some of you feel that on a regular basis. You you, you feel the difference of where we are from a, a cultural landscape landscape the the battle lines have changed the issues have changed the formats of ministries have changed and in fact if you grew up in a kind of a former generation of church and now you're in this kind of church some of you sometimes feel like man what in the world is going on and let me just say to those of you who are part of kind of a former generation and you've stuck with us through all these years thank you thank you for not giving up and quitting just because we don't sing all of your songs and this morning you may have heard how firm a foundation you're like, yes, church, right? Like, yes. A, a classical guitar. You're like, oh, that's beautiful. Some of you are like, oh man, right? So it just, it just, it's just different how we come from various backgrounds. However, let me just tell you this. Not all the change has been necessarily bad. There's been a lot of change and the rate of change has been significant. But the church in the 21st century, I think, is doing a better job of fighting the right battles of reaching unreached people groups, of planting churches, of thinking more carefully, even theologically, working better within the boundaries of evangelicalism and even seeing the value of addressing social issues. But the point of all of this is to simply identify for you that a lot has changed and to acknowledge that a lot, as it relates to the church, has changed very quickly. Now, I say all of that because that makes the book of 1 Timothy really relevant. Why? Because what First Timothy does is it gives us the center. It gives us the thing that should define the church in every era, in every time frame, and in every different culture. It gives us the center of the center, if you will, as to what the church is supposed to be all about. It was written, remember, to a young pastor to help him know how to do church, how to lead a church, how to be able to navigate the waters. And what's beautiful is verses 14 and 15, the text that is in front of us today, it is the center of the center of First Timothy. And I love it when the, 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 the Bible, particularly a New Testament book, gives us a theme verse that just captures the entire book, and that's what verses 14 and 15 are. Look at it again. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... By the way, this delay in Paul's life, we don't know what it was, but you ought to be thankful that he was delayed, because without that delay, you wouldn't have First Timothy. 
just a little side note there for you, that oftentimes God uses delays in ways that we really don't understand or wouldn't value, but in the end are really, really helpful. So Paul is delayed, and therefore he writes this book, so that one ought, so that you will know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the whole purpose of Paul writing this letter is for Timothy to know how he ought to behave in church. That word behave means conduct. It means his speech. In fact, Paul uses the word that's translated here as behave in Chapter 3 and verse 15, New American Standard and NIV translate it in verse verse 15 as conduct. And Paul uses this form also in chapter 4 and verse 12 to describe how Timothy should act in terms of his speech and his lifestyle. So in other words, Paul wrote this letter to help Timothy know how he should navigate the landscape and the challenges of this church at Ephesus. Talked within these two verses, verses 14 and 15. It's not only an explanation about why Paul wrote this book, but also a very clear articulation as to why the church is really important. What I want to do today is show you three things that are in this passage, and I hope to either show you for the first time why the church of Jesus Christ, and for that matter why this church of Jesus Christ, is really, really important. Why you're gathering here on the Lord's Day is a a really significant thing, and why having a group of people around you who love Jesus and, and, and claim to be followers of his while doing that together is a really important thing. This may be the first time you've heard about the importance of the church, or it may be a refresher, but regardless, I want you walking out of here today just with the sense of, man, I just love the church of Jesus Christ. So, within this text are three non-negotiables that we're going to talk about this morning for the church, for any church to embrace. And those three non-negotiables... I'll summarize them with three key words. They're these. Relationship, presence, and truth. The church at the end of the day, friends, is supposed to be about relationship, about presence, and about truth. And those things transcend time and culture. So I don't care if you're in 1940, if you're in 1840, or if you're in 2012. These are the things that should define what the church is all about. And these are the things that make the church something special and a beautiful entity that God has placed us in. So first, this issue of relationship. Think of this. Maybe write this down. Think of it as together as God's children. Here's what Paul says in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul describes the church as the household of God. Other translations render this as God's house or as the house of God. Many of us, I suspect, heard this phrase, house of God, when we were growing up, but we heard it kind of in a negative light. Usually it sounded like this, hey, 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 don't run, this is God's house, right? Maybe, hey, quiet, 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 this is God's house, or don't put your feet up there, this is God's house. And while the word house or household has an element of reverence to it, that's not the real meaning here of what God um, intends through the Apostle Paul. What, what's really intended here is the issue of relationship. The Greek word oikos can refer to either a physical building, like a physical house, or a house in the sense of a household, or in the sense of a family. And we do the same thing when we talk about a household, don't we? Or even when we talk about where someone lives. For instance, if you were to drive by my house, you might point to it and say, ah, that's the Vrogops, even though we might not even be home. 
but you would refer to our house as if that represents our household. So we refer to either the house or the people in the house as this household. Furthermore, the the idea of household has more meaning to it when you consider the relationships that are implied. For instance, if you invite someone over to your house, you're not inviting them just to come in and hang out at your house while you leave, right? You're inviting them to come in and hang out with you. So it'd be really strange if they ding-dong, open the door, hi, welcome, there's the kitchen there, we'll see you, we're heading over to Donato's, and they leave, and they leave your friends at your house. Come over to our house. No, it means hang out with us. I mean, it's obvious. So what Paul is talking about here, it's not a structure. What he's talking about is the dynamic of the relationships that are involved within God's household. Therefore, Paul is talking about being a part of God's family. He's talking about relational connections between people who are part of God's church. And this relational connection of being part of the household of God is Something that we share, this relationship that we share together, is something that we have because of a common relationship with Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So we are a part of God's house. We're a part of this relationship. We're together as God's children because of who Jesus is. So the beautiful thing about the church is that while we come from different backgrounds, while we come from different situations and different cultures, why we look different and some of us even talk different, we all share one life-defining commonality, and it's this, that Jesus is our Lord and Master. This beautiful thing that unites us is this common vision, and it sounds like this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what the church is all about. And regardless of where you've come from, what your experience is, what your race is, what your gender is, what your profession is, how much money you make, how many kids you have, whether you're old or young, whether you've got lots of hair or not much hair, it doesn't matter. What matters is the common denominator is I know Jesus Christ and so do you and we are part of God's family. That's what the church is. This beautiful collection of what it means to be the body of Christ. And what's more, for those who've received Christ as their Savior, they are also filled with the same Spirit. So it's not just that we have the same Lord and the same Savior, but we're, in, we're, we're indwelt with the same presence of the living Christ in the Holy Spirit. So for those who have been brought into God's family, they've not only been forgiven of their sins... Not only have they been cleansed by virtue of the death of the death of Jesus and his work, but they have been called sons. God adopts us. He calls us part of his family. So God not only forgives treasonous sinners, he actually not only pardons them, but he welcomes them into his family. I need to show you this in a couple places. So take your Bible. Let's go look at at the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans 8, and then we're going to go over to a lengthy passage in Ephesians, because I need, I want to show you this, that the Bible talks about us in terms of our um, adoptive quality in the sense of being children of God. Look at verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. Here's what Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
What does the text say? The text says that God, by His Spirit, has indwelt those who know Christ and has adopted us such that we have this commonality of a relationship with Jesus in God's family. Now, take your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Because not only is this that God has brought us into God's family, not only is this that He has filled us with the Spirit, but there's the sense that now this this relationship with Jesus becomes the defining common ground of all people who are in the body of Christ. And it breaks down all manner of differences. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 It's a little long, but it's important to understand the whole context. Listen to the dark um, alienation and then how we're brought near by the blood of Christ and then the effect. Look at Ephesians 2.11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? And then the beautiful verse 13 kicks in. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All God's people said, Amen. For He Himself is our peace. This is what He did. Who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but notice what you are. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, here it is, household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's an amazing text talking about the beautiful reality of what God does for us in and through Christ. You see, what was going on in Paul's day is not much different than our own. In Paul's day, the cultural lines were drawn very strongly and definitively. The miracle of the gospel is even though these cultural lines are drawn so strongly, the miracle is that the gospel is the way that God unites people who are very different. See, the reality is is that the gospel doesn't change your gender. The gospel doesn't change your position. It doesn't change your race. But what the gospel does is that it adds a transforming dimension to your gender. It adds a transforming dimension to your race. It adds a transforming dimension to your position in life so that the life of Jesus now shines through your gender, through your race, and through your position in life. So you look around and we have people from all walks of life. People from different backgrounds, different cultures, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds. 
And the beautiful thing is that in the midst of all of this, Jesus radically transforms who we are such that a common denominator for us now is not our background, our our issues, our race, our culture. Our common denominator now is Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying here? Well, he's not saying that race or position or gender are obliterated. I'm still a man. I'm still white. I still allegedly have a Michigan accent. I can't change those things. That's who I am. And yet the beautiful reality is that the gospel transforms my identity in this world and it causes me to love and know people who have a common relationship with Jesus who I would not normally know and love. I mean, in another scenario, I wouldn't be hanging out with you, right? I wouldn't like you. You wouldn't like me. There's, there's, that would not be the case. And yet think what happens every Sunday morning in a small group, in an ABF class, in this large gathering, is the beautiful thing that happens is the body of Christ comes together and the common denominator, the focal point, is our common relationship with Jesus. So what does this do to the church then? What does this make us? This makes us unlike any other gathering on the earth. In fact, The transformative reality of Jesus at the center becoming the focal point should make, listen, the church a little taste of heaven. It means that we are all part of God's family, that we are brothers and sisters in the family of God, and the result, friends, is that we treat one another differently. We gather for the purpose of celebrating Jesus. And that changes everything about how we interact with one another. Oh, I'm still a man and I'm still white. I still was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. But it changes how I relate to you because we have a common relationship with the sovereign Christ who has redeemed us and made us whole. What happens is this, in its simplest form, that our love for Jesus eclipses how really different we are. Now listen, this happens in our culture Anyways, and it should happen in the context of the church, maybe even in a more robust way. There are scenarios where you will hang out with people, you'll do crazy things with people because something eclipses how different you are. Let me illustrate this. Before I came to College Park, I had never gone to an NFL football game ever. You know why? A simple word. Lions. That's why. Okay. So I just it, it, it was a terrible season in my lifetime. I didn't know what good football was. I just didn't. Sorry, Barry Sanders, but the reality is, it just wasn't. It wasn't. It was very disappointing. So a couple weeks ago, when I'm watching the Lions on television and I'm a, in a playoff, I'm just like, I don't even have a category for what I'm seeing here, right? So I just didn't. So I'd never gone to an NFL football game. So I go to one when I'm in here in Indianapolis, and there's this amazing thing that happens when a touchdown takes place. Suddenly, all these people that I'm sitting next to, who I don't know and have no relationship with, suddenly they're like my best friends, right? We're jumping up, we're high-fiving each other, woo! We're hugging on each other, yeah! Woo, woo, woo! I don't even know the guy's name, right? I mean, seriously, I'm all over him, yeah, 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 we're awesome, go Colts, right? I mean, it's just this strange thing that eclipses all the relational differences. I don't know where they're from or what they speak or what they're drinking. I don't know any of that stuff. But what I know is that suddenly now we have this common focal point. And the beauty of the moment... And the power of it eclipses all the differences. 
So that makes sense in a Colts football game, right? But you don't do that when you find a good price of coffee at Target, right? So if you're standing there like, yeah, give me some, look at that. People would be like, what? That doesn't make sense, right? Why would you be like, get out of here, aisle five, you know, they're like, get out of there. Or if you go to the teller and you, you deposit your check and they give you a receipt, you're like, give me some. You're like, what? It just wouldn't make sense. It'd be awkward. Don't do that, okay? So it just, why wouldn't it work? Because the eclipsing value of the moment isn't greater than just the normal activity of what's going on in life. So here's the deal. So you come on a Sunday morning and you've got something so incredibly glorious to celebrate. The beautiful reality of what Christ has done and what happens in worship or in the word or in fellowship. There is this unity that comes that has a powerful eclipsing reality over our differences. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out and start giving each other high fives in the hallway. Maybe you want to do that this morning. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is something that unites us and makes us uniquely unified it is that jesus has redeemed us he has saved us he has adopted us we are god's children we are brothers and sisters in the family of god listen brothers and sisters we are in god's house we're a relationship of brothers and sisters we are in god's house and that's what the church is supposed to be this relationship focused on the beauty of who and what jesus is now, here's the second thing, is that there's also this sense of presence, that God is here. Let me explain this. Let's go back to, again, verse 15. He not only talks about how to behave in the household of God, but then he says, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. So I want to take these, this phrase, church and living God, in reverse order, and then draw them together and help you understand what they mean. First, let's start with the phrase, living God. Remember that in the Greco-Roman world, there were all sorts of idols. Think, for instance, when Paul goes to the city of Athens in Acts 17, and he walks around the city, the Bible says that his heart was grieved over at the level of idolatry. In fact, when he addresses the Areopagus, the, the, the ruling council members, he talks about an idol in their courtyard that was inscribed with this phrase or this terminology to the unknown God. So idolatry was such a part of their culture that they even had idols to gods they didn't know. And Ephesus, in particularly, in particular, was really known for their idol worship, since within the city of Ephesus was a temple to Diana, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, idol worship and idol manufacturing, they were a major part of the fabric of the city of Ephesus. People manufactured these idols and, and um, these figurines of either Diana or maybe also of the temple, and they brought them either with them, they put them in their home, they carried them around with them. And when Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus resulted in people turning from their idols to the living God, well, the idol manufacturing business got pretty ticked off, and they ran Paul out, saying he's going to destroy our economy. The city is known for this temple. He destroys this temple. We're done. And so they ran him out of the city. So idol worship is a big deal. Not only for the Greco-Roman world, but specifically for the city of Ephesus. So when Paul says that we serve the living God, what he's doing there is he's taking a swipe at the lifeless idolatry that the people of Ephesus embraced. In fact, in the city of Lystra, Paul said it this way, We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. 
And even while in the city of Ephesus, Paul performed miracles. Acts 19.11. Why did he perform those miracles? To show the people that the living God was real. He was alive. He was more powerful than the God called Diana or Artemis. So when you hear living, don't just hear living as if it's a neutral description. What Paul is saying here is saying this. He's saying, your idols are dead. Our God, alive. You worship something fake. Our God, yeah, he's real. So he says it's the church of the living God. Paul is courageously making a statement here about the power, the authority, and the reality of Christianity. In other words, Paul is saying this thing called the church with God in the midst is the real deal. The church of the living God. Now he also uses this word church. Let's look at this. What does this mean? Again, we're going to unite this concept of living and this idea of church, living God and church. So the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's two words that are put together, and it essentially means to be called out. The idea is called out to an assembly. And the way the word got its meaning is that when the people of God gathered, a horn was sounded, a shofar was sounded, and the people would come out of their tents and they would gather. So some sound was made, and then they would come and they would assemble. This is, some of you remember this growing up, that when you would walk to church or when you'd get out of your car and go to church, there would be a bell that was tolling, right? Why? Because in the olden days, that's how they signify when church would start. They would ring the bells and people would be called out of their homes. They'd walk to the assembly called the church. So ecclesia, they'd be called out. And the idea is that with the sounding of this horn, with the ringing of this bell, people would gather, but it wasn't just a normal assembly. They were gathering for a very special purpose. And here's what that purpose is. They are gathering as God's people in the presence of God. And for that matter, according to this text, they are gathering in the presence of the living God. So this idea of people gathering in the presence of God or God coming into their midst, listen, this is part of the overarching theme of the entire Bible. This idea of God drawing near, people coming to his presence, it's found all over the Old and New Testament. Let me just give you about a two-minute summary of all the places that this is found. Consider, first of all, in Genesis 3.8, when God walks in the garden, he walks in the cool of the day. There's fellowship with Adam and Eve. There's this presence of God. And then Genesis 3.23, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, what happens? They're cast out of the garden. What are they, what are they disciplined in, in what way are they disciplined? They're thrown out of or away from God's presence. And then think Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. After being delivered from Egypt, God meets with his people and he comes down on that mountain. And there they are. They're gathered at the base of the mountain and God meets with them. Deuteronomy 6, 15, the whole rationale for the Old Testament law. Why are there all these crazy dietary restrictions and all these things about cleanliness, clean and unclean? You know why? Because Deuteronomy 6, 15 says this, I, your God, am in your midst. Part of the reason for all this cleanliness is because God is in the middle of them. Even the way their camp was designed, God was in the middle Exodus 40, 33, and 2 Chronicles 7, 1. When the tabernacle and the temple are built, God comes down and meets with his people. And then through a very dark season where it almost seemed as if God had forgotten about his people, he promised that one day a virgin would conceive and bear a child, and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Fast forward in the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene. John the Apostle says that we beheld his glory 
the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Corinthians 6.19, after Jesus leaves, God imparts to us and fills us with the Spirit such that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit makes your body the very temple of the Holy Spirit. God with us. And then Revelation 21.3, the consummation, what's coming at the end. The biblical story ends with our back to Eden story. As the New Jerusalem, what does the New Jerusalem do? The New Jerusalem comes down and the proclamation is made that sounds like this. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. This is the, this is the story of the Bible. It is that God is on a mission to come down. So this idea, listen, of being called out as the church is not only central to the biblical story, but it's central to what should be our aim even today. On this Sunday, the the church's uniqueness in the world is that it's the assembly of God's people who have gathered, listen, for the express purpose of meeting with the living God. So when you put this together, this called out and this living God, and you put them together, the reality is is that the church is a called out group of people who gather to experience the presence of god that the purpose of sunday worship the purpose of a weekly gathering of god's people is for us to meet with the living god not just to have your needs met not just to know how to be able to fix your life not just even to know how to have your sins forgiven all those things are part of the equation but at the end of the day the reason that we gather on the first day of the week is for god's people to be called out from their homes from their cities and to gather in a location and to meet with the living creator of the world that's what sunday's about It's not just about you getting information. It means that you are here and God is here. John Stott says this. How how does this happen? Listen, Listen how he says it happens. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and the exposition of the word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread. And our fellowship, we love one another as he loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers come into the midst of the congregation. They may confess that God is really among you. The idea is this church, through their understanding of worship and the proclamation of the word, and in loving one another and in celebrating communion and in serving each other, are so vibrant and so full of the presence of God that when an unbeliever comes, into their midst the bible says that they are amazed at the presence of god and say surely god is among you in other words there's no place like this that i've ever seen see brothers and sisters this this is the this is the brass ring that god calls us to reach for when it comes to what the church is supposed to be the church is most glorious most alive most vibrant when the gathered assembly knows that god is in her midst So in March, as a part of our THINK conference, we're going to talk about the subject of revival. Do you know what revival is? It's not complicated. Revival, essentially, is the manifest manifest presence of Jesus in the church. It means when the dull elements, when the mundane pieces, when the shallow and carnal aspects of church life are confronted with the clear conviction of the presence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And what that means is that people in their marriages go, wait a minute, we're playing around here. This is not right. Jesus is here. They feel strangely convicted. They stop playing around. They stop messing around. They stop being lukewarm about their fidelity to Jesus. And suddenly the church gets real because Jesus is there. So the book of Hebrews says it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That a person would rather be right and rather be clean than to hide behind their sin anymore. And when the church becomes real and the manifest presence of Christ comes, there is something powerful as you see a church aflame. One of the reasons that you need to read the book that we're offering is so that you can see what happened at a local level or a regional level, or at a national level, when a sweeping movement of God's Spirit came upon a people. Not that they have more of the Spirit, but that there's this sense that the Spirit of the living God is more in more control of their lives. You know, one of the stories that I heard when I candidated here about College Park, the sense of God's presence, is that somebody told me that they they came here, drove up in our parking lot, and as somebody came out of the building, uh, the person said to them, all i got to tell you is God's in there. And friends, that's incredibly attractive to a watching world. To a world that's starving for real, substantive, honest relationship with the Creator. To know that God is here. That's what the church, that's what this church is supposed to be known for. So let me ask you, is that, is that why you came today? Did you come to meet with God? Did you prepare to meet with God that way? Did you drive thinking, I can't wait to be able to be in God's presence? Or did you just think, I don't want to be late? I want to get my kids checked in. Hope my shoes are tied. Everyone be quiet in the car. Find my seat. Do I like the music? Is the sermon boring? I mean, you have all these things running through your head. And the question is, did you come today with the expectation, I am here to meet with the living God? Do you hear preaching as hearing His voice? Or do you just hear it as some sort of presentation? Do you sing music and sing it in a way such that you're worshiping and talking to God, not just about Him? Because the church was designed not to be something just to meet the needs in your life or just to be able to give you more information or make you feel better. Its design is that you meet with the living God, that you are real and honest before Him. That's what renewal, that's what revival, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's the church of the living God. And then finally, that we're called to proclaim this truth which is proclaiming eternally important news. By truth, what does Paul mean? He means divine revelation. He means the gospel. He means the truth about who you are, the truth about who God is, the truth about what you need to do, and the truth about heaven and hell. That's the truth. That you're a sinner. That you need a Savior. And the only way you can be saved from a holy God's wrath is for Christ to have died for your sins and for you to repent of your sins and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. And this truth is what the church is called to declare. He says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The city of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, would have known a lot about pillars because pillars were the predominant architectural element as it relates to this temple of Diana. It was a 450 feet long, 250 feet wide, 60-some feet tall, and boasted 127 pillars in this structure that was the seventh wonder of the world. 
It's no wonder that Paul used the phrase pillar because they knew what pillars were about. What do you do with pillars? You put pillars on really important buildings. You use pillars to hold up things that are really significant. Pillars make a statement. And Paul essentially says to the church, look, this, your church, this body, this body of believers, you are the pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, you are to make this truth known. It is to be declared. It is to be exalted. It is to be lifted up. It is to be made manifest to a watching world. A pillar majestically adorns a building to make it to be seen or noticed, and the church is supposed to do that with the truth of the gospel. And then he says, a buttress. The word means foundation or bulwark or support or ground. In other words, the church provides support and stability and holds the truth. It, it, it protects it, it guards it. It not only proclaims it, but it also holds it stable. An entire building can collapse if the foundation is weakened or destroyed, and so the church is a foundation of the truth. It's to hold the truth firmly so that it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. It's also a pillar in that she's, we are called to boldly display this gospel to hold it high in its proclamation. The church is called to both be a foundational element of the truth and a proclaimer of the truth. So this truth of the gospel is what's on the line every Sunday. That's why when we approach Sunday, we need to approach it as if heaven and hell were on the line, because the reality is heaven and hell are on the line every Sunday. The church is God's vehicle through which the world comes to understand and know the life-changing message that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's, no, no, there's nothing more important that we could talk about than this. So the church, whether it's a group of individuals or whether it's the collective body, we declare and preserve the life-changing message. We have, brothers and sisters, we have eternally important news to share. And so therefore, we have to take this eternally important news and we have to guard it, we have to protect it, we have to preserve it as if life depended upon it. Because we ought to boldly proclaim this truth of the gospel as broadly as possible and as effectively as possible because life does really depend on it. For that matter, eternal life really depends on it. In other words, listen to me. Church is not a game. This is God's place. This is the dwelling place of God's people. And the truth that we talk about is not just a truth. It's the truth. And it's the truth that makes the difference between heaven and hell. So church is not a game. It's not a trite little thing that we do once a week. This is the assembly of God's people in the presence of God, in the manifest presence of Jesus, invested fully with the presence of the Spirit of the living God. And we proclaim the beautiful truths that make a difference for all of eternity. What could possibly be more important than the church of Jesus Christ? There's nothing. So I'm saying that you ought to love the church. You ought to, oh, I know the church isn't perfect. I mean, you're here, right? I mean, I'm here. The church, the church is not perfect. It's got, our church isn't perfect. We've got a lot of things we need to grow up in. A lot of things to become in, in a fullness of what it means to be a mature body of believers. But the fact of the matter is the church was God's idea. And you ought to love the church. You ought to love the beautiful reality of what God has done in the church. And so my question that I leave you with today is just simply this. So why did you come today? And what would bring you back? Why does the church through all of the ages really matter? What makes the church really important? What what makes the church fundamentally important? Paul would tell you, 
that while the church isn't important, there are, there are reasons just to marvel at her beauty because of the relationships with people whose single common denominator is Jesus. The thing that makes us brothers and sisters is we love the same master. Regardless of our different backgrounds, our different ethnicities, our different life experiences, many of you, you would, you would not likely hang out with 90% of the people who are in this very room right now, but here you are, and you're going to see people in the hallway, today, and the only reason that you are in the same building is because of the most important person in all of history, Jesus Christ. The church is important because of the special sense that when you're in a room with a bunch of people who love Jesus and suddenly God shows up and you realize, you know what, God is here. Or you've been sitting in a seat and you know God himself is speaking to you. Oh, he's using a written text, he's using a human voice, but in the end of the day, there's too many things. This is God speaking and you know it's him. Or third, knowing that what you're talking about is not only true, but it's eternally important news. This is not just some news. It is the news. So all of that to say that the church is very, very special. It's very important. And it's no wonder that Jesus would make this compelling statement about the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. She's that important for the advancement of God's kingdom. So Lord, help us to not deal lightly with what we talk about today. This church full of the truth of your word, full of potential of relationships, full of potential influence in the world. Help us to be the kind of people who love love the impartation of the gospel, love its proclamation, and love the context in which it happens in the body of Christ. Help us at College Park Church to be a place where our single common denominator is Jesus. Lord, we, we want your presence to be felt among us as we worship. And we want to be reminded that there is no more important news than what we talk about today. So help us to hear what you are saying by your Spirit to your church today. And help us to then live out and in the power of the Spirit of the risen Christ to make your church everything that you want her to be for your glory and our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.